they blasted and dug with their sweat and their guts. They never drank water but whiskey by pints. And the shanty towns rang with their songs and their fights. Navigator, navigator, rise up and be strong. The morning is here and there's work to be done. Get your pick and your shovel and them all dynamite. Where to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. Yes, to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. They died in their hundreds with no sign to mark where. Save the brass in the pocket of the entrepreneur. By roadsides and rock blasts, they got buried so deep. But if death is not life, they'll have peace while they sleep. Navigator, navigator, rise up and be strong. The morning is here and there's work to be done. Take your tick and your shovel and them all dynamite. Where to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. Yes, to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. <sighs> the mark on this land is still seen and still laid. <clears throat> a way for a commerce where vast fortunes were made. Some loyal to an empire where the sun never set. Which is now deep in darkness, but the railway's there yet. Navigator, navigator, rise up and be strong. The morning is here and there's work to be done. Take your pick and your shovel and then all dynamite. Where to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. Yes, to shift a few tons of this earthly delight. One of my favorite songs, Navigator, as covered by the Pogues. That's not a Pogues original. Uh, like the, uh, the band says, a band, uh, the band played Walsing Matilda also a cover. Two of their best songs were covers, but that it, it just shows the breadth of your musicality in a way that you can get a you can make the definitive co version of something. Somebody asked if Panda Express is good, and you know what? I wouldn't have been qualified to answer that until a couple weeks ago. But I just, uh, the last couple weeks, I found myself by happenstance going into Panda Expresses, not in malls, which I honestly, before this month, didn't think was a thing. I thought Panda Express was exclusively available in malls, that there weren't any standalones. And now two times in the last month, I found myself in a situation where I needed to eat something on the run, and I'm in a car, and oh, there's Panda Express. And I've gone twice now. I've had the I had the the Beijing beef uh, one time, the bowl, and the other time I had um, I think the garlic pepper chicken, and I have to say, pretty good. And I realize, at least this is my theory. I don't know if it's true, 
that the reason that um, Panda Express now, I really feel like this is new, now has these uh, standalone locations because I swear to God, I swear to God, I never saw Panda Express outside of a mall before. And since I don't go to malls as a habit, as a matter of course, I kind of thought, well, I'm never going to have Panda Express again. And then, boom, they're out there. And my theory about it, this might it's totally made up by me, theoretical style, is that it is the market responding to the creation of the Chipotle level of like ethnic food delivery. Like Chipotle invented a new way to get a uh, ethnic, ethnic cuisine, right, in a way that was like rationalized and standardized and homogenized for a suburban palate. That had existed at the end of fast food like Taco Bell, but it had not existed at the level of uh, the the attainable, uh, like upmarket faster food. The the area for the more well healed among the the middle class who buys things and goes to make, uh, restaurants that you can that are a sufficient number to make a business to make to make an industry. They created they found this sector. Of, of people with a little more money in their hands. And yes, Subway was the first of this, but it was really an outlier and really ahead of its time. It was, uh, and also, you know, the sub is sort of a different thing. You know, they kind of invented something there. Uh, but so Chipotle is this new type of consumer experience for the people who want uh, to gesture towards like urban sophistication that higher price pointed food offerings represent. Uh, but live in the context of, you know, economically and, and uh, geographically in like a suburban milieu. Attainable urbanity, attainable uh, bohemianism. And that created a new market, really, because people found out, oh, there's money here. And so now you have a bunch of attempts to do that for different foods. Pizza has two, Pieology and Blaze, which I believe is owned by Chipotle. It's like a, a play for a new sector. And that is, hey, what if you could do that with pizza? What if you could make pizza bespoke enough to transcend like a hot and ready or a fucking uh, uh, a day class A $5 hot and ready from uh, Little Caesars? But is it like a brick mortar uh, Neapolitan place that's more expensive? It's the new era. And so that's going to come for every uh, type of food. And maybe Panda Express saw the spot and went for it sort of the way that blockbuster could have been, could have evolved into a, the streaming platform that we all use for movies, but they fucked up. Like they had the slot and there was even the awareness that it was a reality. And there was a desire within the company to move in that direction, but they were too more poorly managed to handle it. And so Pan express is sort of does the anti blockbuster and slides in there. Hey, Pan express, here it is. A machine level uh, 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 Chinese food, but presented. And the thing is, it is presented like it wasn't in the. This is a rebrand all along. You have to remember this because the original Panda Express play really was Taco Bell for Mexican for us Chinese food. It was de classe. But I tell you guys, these two ones I've gone to, they are Chipotle to the level. To level, they're absolutely trying to be that, and uh, it's it's tasty. It's not bad. But again, I just made that up. I have no idea. So you're saying that these are not new and it's always been that way? I guess that's just the spot that Panda Express has been sitting in. It's been in the cut waiting to, to come to life. Sounded, it was fine. 
it is it's about as good as that level of thing. So that is to say, Pan Express is not bad. The Beijing beef was pretty good, I gotta say. You can build a bowl with the different type of things. They have like six different versions. And you can go with lo mein or fried rice as a base. So yeah, Pan Express is fine. It's like Chipotle. Yeah, Chipotle is not great. If there are better options, you should take them. But if you want a burrito and you're like getting uh, gas, you know, or doing errands, you could do worse. That's for sure. Look at all those emotes. There are no bodegas in L.A. There are 7-Elevens. And I got to say, I'm with Matt Burning on this. 7-Eleven is superior to the bodega in every way. It is the highest level of bodega. Yes, I do have Wisconsinite taste. I always have. I like ketchup. I like ketchup on, uh, I like ketchup on mac and cheese like a fucking Canadian. I'll admit it. Yes, there is no chumped cheese at 7-Eleven, but they do have a lot of other great options. They've got decent pizza, a little thin slice, or the thin crust. They've got those little uh, kind of uh, egg rolls with the exotic flavors in them. And they got slushies. Whereas, what does a bodega have? Chomped cheese and the dustiest sandwiches you've ever had. Yes, bodegas have atmosphere, and they better because that's what you're paying for, living in a city with bodegas. That's, how, that's, the, that's what makes it all worthwhile, is that, is that exotic touch to make you feel sophisticated. That is, that's, that's the value you get from the bodega experience. The writing is coming pretty well. The interviews that are going to form the basis of the book have been completed, and now I'm going to edit them, shape the language, add stuff, and turn it into something uh, legible. So that's the, the final sort of writing by editing process is coming up, and I'm excited. You also get a lot of... Uh, convenience that way with the bodegas because if you live in new york you're never more than about a block away from a bodega in most neighborhoods so that's not necessarily true of 7-eleven in uh, other parts of the country because you know they can only compete against each other so much i went to a quick trip when i was in wisconsin visiting my parents and i've got to say they have definitely risen to the challenge of the 7-Eleven food experience because they don't just have the, the, uh, the case of uh, summer sausage and cheese curds that they used to have. 
Now they've got a whole prepared meal section with their own pizza and their own little nuggets and, and hot dogs and shit, all prepared and, and arranged very much like a 7-Eleven. And apparently those, uh, those upgrades were very expensive for 7-Eleven uh, owner-operators because it operates on a franchise model. But 7-Eleven has this contract where they're, they dictate to their uh, franchisee what they have to keep in their store to say to keep their license as a 7-Eleven. So they have to say, like, to be in a 7-Eleven, you have to provide X, Y, and Z like, as part of your, uh, your arrangement. And now their contracts are requiring them to keep these food items in there, even though it's very expensive to maintain a, uh, a essentially restaurant inside something that's supposed to be a convenience store. Uh, and so it's a, it's actually a, a loss for a lot of these franchisees, but they have to pay that basically to keep the franchise. And so it's led to this really grim and and honestly illustrative phenomenon where the mostly immigrant owners of Sevens Eleven who were brought into like their franchise relationship by a concerted effort by Seven Eleven to reach out to the South Indian South Asian community specifically. And say, hey, you, you want to come to this country? Here's an opportunity. You don't have to worry about if your uh, engineering degree is going to be able to get you a, a, a similar job to that in the United States. You know, you don't have to worry about maybe having to drive a cab if you can own your own business. And there's like, there's networks that created this. And now they're imposing all these requirements on the 7-Elevens that are making it making the margins so thin for the operators. Meanwhile, 7-Eleven is just getting the franchise fees, you know and getting the profits uh, is that they're essentially working for like 20 grand a year. Like they have been fully proletarianized and they're hyper exploiting their own time too. They've been, even though they're, they're members of the petty bourgeois, like they are the yeoman holdout because of their position, their vulnerable position as immigrants, largely like Seven uh, Eleven would, if they kicked up a fuss about this stuff, Seven Eleven six ice on them. Like they literally collaborate with the state to wring uh, bargaining power away from these uh, owner-operators. So now Quick Trip is becoming like that. This this local mainstay is becoming like that. You know, it's uh, it shows that everything, every every uh, sort of social construction short of socialism that you tried to build to dam up. The, uh, the power of capital to just proletarianize everybody, including people who, are, who hold a stake in capitalism, like the petty bourgeois. You could steamroll them because there's nothing they could build that can, uh, that can resist it. So we had this American idea of the yeoman smallholder, first of land, then of some sort of business, as a bulwark against uh, the the condition of proletariat, which is what you're trying to avoid, and if you think a system will help you avoid proletarianization, you will uh, engage with it enthusiastically. But then that relationship changes as the pressure of capital accumulates. the 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 drop of profit, the rise of of uh, the liquidation of of all classes, save owner. And provider of labor. And that means that a lot of people in that middle sector are not going to be brought up 
and bought into this new ruling power, they're going to fall out of it. They're going to fall out of the middle section into proletarianization. And that is the agonized position of the American middle class that makes up whatever kind of reactionary formation around Trump you want to talk about. And it is a resistance of proletarianization by this middle strata of people who are participators and beneficiaries of the Amer- of the American capitalist order. And so what looked like uh, look, looks like a battle between like some left and right between some working class and and the ruling class is really just this uh, this cultural battle waged between people who's on different sides of this equation as the thing falls apart. So you've got this uh, the last remaining believers in capitalism, right? Are your le- liberal media class? and the media people that they create, and the culture that they create. Those are the last people who really believe in capitalism, because they believe that even under fully uh, fully uh, proletarianized hypercapitalism, that they will be on the winning end of it. That they will have reached a position within capitalism where they will be a, a rentier and not a laborer. A Eloy, not a Morlock. And that's because they believe at a, at a level of, of um, a deep uh, uh, existential conviction that their talents, because these are the last meritocrats, that their talents will earn them a spot away from the conditions of exploitation that make up being a proletarian or a member of the reserve army of labor, the totally uh, uh, destroyed and cast down uh, uh, lumpen that is created inevitably by the system. There's no guarantee that you're not even going to just, you're not, you're, that you're even going to be able to work with your hands or work uh, or exploit your time. You might not be given any reason to exist in this system and have to fucking scrounge for yourself in what are essentially post-apocalyptic conditions. Like when we talk about the uh, uh, capitalism being, uh, 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 unevenly distributed, so is the apocalypse. The apocalypse as we imagine it in our mind, post-nuclear apocalypse, the, the global warming idea of apocalypse that it came after the Cold War vision of ecstatic extinguishment was gone. That vision exists for those who are no longer of use to capitalism and who cannot sell their labor. In the global south, but in, the, in this city, a block from where I stand, the apocalypse is here for those who have reached that condition within capitalism. And we've reached a point where the war, the culture battle is between those people who think that when that time comes, they will be inside the house, not outside. And for our lumpen bourgeois that make up the Trump base, the, the, the Heron Volk democratic, the fascist, whatever you want to call it, base of, of, of populist nationalism, those people believe that when the time comes, given the current arrangement of capitalism, they will, in fact, be consumed and extruded and cast out into the apocalypse. A post-industrial, post, a post-industrial world of total pollution, scarcity, uh, and breakdown of basic uh, protections of law and contract. And on the other side of that, the the good guys from a cultural perspective, because they uphold pluralism, they uphold the notions of like 
universal humanity that we need to survive as a species. They have that going for them, but it is on top of a belief that these things can only be advanced by capitalism, an embedded understanding that only capitalism can sustain this. And so that means that on the other end of that, you have the people, the meritocrats, in addition to the people who are just so wealthy that they know that they already own, they already own the means of production. It doesn't matter. It's in their hip pocket. This is all just a game to them. But like that tenuous class, the academic elite, the media class, the people who make up the conversation that we're all participating in and that makes up our understanding of the fucking, like, the terrain of the country we live in. Because we don't know what's going on in the country. We don't know what's going on in the world. We echolocate through an engagement with the culture that is made by this class of people, the last believers in capitalism, because they think that their talents, either their labor talents, or if they've deluded themselves into thinking that they're part of a, uh, a political project that will bring about peaceful socialism from within capitalism. Those, Because you can't discount that. There are plenty of totally uh, uh, earnest comrades who adhere to capitalism at a subconscious level, at a faith level, because they think not that, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll be a winner. I'll be, I'll be a holder of uh, capital. They think, no, my political project that I'm going to be part of is going to eventually overtake capitalism. And so everyone will be in the tent. And so my participation in capitalism in the here and now is justified. And those, that, those people are battling on a cultural firmament. But at the basic, the, the, the machine is operating independently of the political engagement because we have detached from class, because our politics is purely a representation of our understanding of the world, which is the simulacrum, which is the, this cultural fake world the, the world where where uh, the the destiny of the nation is on whether or not we accept critical race theory, whether or not that is going to determine whether capitalism lives or dies, it does not. It is a it is a delusional participation. It is a it is a performance by a class of people who think that they're going to be okay one way or the other. And so they can uh, articulate a politics that is based on capitalism and is assumes without any metaphysical question that it cannot be overtaken. And that is why the politics as we currently have it is sterile and doomed. Why it doesn't matter whether if they ban CRT from schools or if they, if they ban uh, any kind of ableism in any entertainment uh, and make critical, like you can ban critical race theory in schools, but that will only make critical ma- race theory mandatory in the culture. So there is no way anyone can win this battle because things are going to keep getting worse. And at the level of law, the places where Republicans rule are going to use the law to stamp out uh, the ability to express left wing political ideals, critical race. A racial consciousness that can transcend the racial uh, apartheid structure of American social life. You uh, that you will somehow stop the drift of culture because that's what you're actually participating in 
towards uh, the sort of mongrelized culture you're afraid of. Guess what? You're only making it inevitable. Because if you make CRT illegal in schools, you will make it mandatory in cultural production. Now, they're not going to use laws to make it mandatory. They're just going to use the market in the form of what people will pay for, what media platforms will pay to have produced. That is going to, that market, that invisible hand is going to determine, the actual market is going to determine that you cannot get anything made or consumed widely within the culture unless it fully makes, if it makes race and racism the central and foundational message, purpose for being of it. Forget art. There is no aesthetic question here. We are only going to ask the question of, does this perform a political act of being anti-racist? And those dynamics will uh, inflame each other and ratchet each other up and drive us towards civil conflict, but the engine of that will be a immiserating social context of hyper-capitalism overtaking everything and casting everyone out of any position of safety into full precarity. But that's not going to be, in, that's not going to be um, addressed by any of these either cultural or political fights because they're independent of capitalism. Ooh, all right. So this was supposed to be the episode where I talked about uh, Red Plenty. Or no, Red Plenty. We should talk about that book, actually. It's fascinating. Francis Spofford, it's a historical novel about uh, the Soviet attempt to solve the riddle of price point, of, of the price mechanism. How to reproduce technologically the um, the price signal. That was the That was what the Soviets actually tried to do under Khrushchev. And Brezhnev, they, they tried to create a command consumer economy by, and having the efficiency of the market reproduced cybernetically. And that is the challenge of socialism. That is the fundamental challenge of socialism. Because when you talk about the, uh, about the working class seizing control of capitalism at a point when its conditions of uh, capital accumulation have created the necessary technological capacity to distribute labor outputs rationally and not through the market. And you can say that one of the reasons the Soviet Union failed is because we hadn't reached that point yet. A point that Marx was probably too optimistic in his own understanding. He underestimated the degree to which technology could put off the end of capitalism. The technology could smooth things out socially enough to allow capitalism to sustain itself, to buy off revolution, essentially. He underestimated his capacity to do that. That's not his fault. That is something he could not have known. That is one of those unknown knowns that, that that's the ignorance that you like have to revolve around. It's the fucking, it's the black hole at the center of the universe of our understanding of the world is this unknowable future. And that's what every one of our understandings is built on. And so Marx built this perfect, I think, Framework for understanding capitalism as a, as an as an economy and as a politics as a culture, as an as a reality. But he, as with anything, you can either know momentum or um, speed. You can't know both. There is a great unknown known, and for Marx, it was technology and the technological capacity 
to create, uh, to ease, to uh, distribute rationally resources, by which I mean to keep the host alive and not kill it. Rational distribution. And rational distribution happened at the center of capitalism because of imperialism, because the hyper-exploitation of the global south allowed for a rational distribution of resources at the center of production where capitalism was most vulnerable away from crisis. And that was buying off the working class. And that is why America became the, the world headquarters of capitalism. It's why the German revolutions of 1918 and 1920 failed. Because at the center of capitalism, rational distribution had been culturally facilitated. And it spreads through the system, but at the level of the hyper-exploited uh, 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 endpoint of capital accumulation. The colonies, you have just pure uh, savagery. You have, you, have, you have no room for a, a social heart to beat. You have the cold steel. You have the whip of the slave owner. You have the, the sneer of cold command of the slave-owning aristocracy, the old junkers. And that meant that when the great crisis of capitalism finally came in the early 20th century, the capitalism Marx had been predicting and was correct in his understanding of about when it would happen, the technology had existed long enough to distribute rationally at the center of capitalism sufficient adherence to capitalism among the working class that there was, at the time of crisis, there was no one there to fight. When the real moment came, because you can forgive the social democrats in Germany, for example, for voting for war credits, because they assume, like everybody, that it, World War One would be like every previous uh, European war since the uh, end of the Napoleonic era, since the Council of uh, uh, since the, the 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 Council of Vienna. Short, one season long affairs, but bloody nose and a treaty. They were all assuming that. They shouldn't have. That was insane. But it was underlining their logic. Because you go by, when you're trying to make a decision, you go by what had happened in the past. That's one of the fundamental things that's going to doom us as a species. So you can forgive them for that. Public opinion was patriotic, even among workers, because the system had been rewarding them. It had been giving them better lives. It had been giving them political control. It had been distributing the, 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 the surplus of capitalism rationally and away from just the market hoovering it up towards uh, in profits towards ownership. And that meant that, sure, they voted for war credits, but then, in 1918, after four years of the most horrifying war anyone had seen since the 30 fucking years war, but on a mechanical scale of death that was unprecedented, in the, in, the, in the folk lives of these people, a, a, te a technologically aided massacre of unprecedented proportions that leaves the, the cream of the German working class, the French working class, the British working class dead in a, in a field at each other's hands. The working class of Europe had committed suicide at the behest of their rulers. But... In that moment, the working class of uh, the, 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 the remainder of the working class of Europe 
turned towards their leaders, turned to upward and said, holy shit, how did you let this happen? And that crisis came all across Europe. But the only place that it broke towards revolution was the place where the working class was the smallest and where the spoils of capitalism had been distributed least rationally towards the maintenance of some sort of frithing middle middle section. And so it snapped, the system snapped in half, and the and the incohate working masses of the of the of the Russian cities were able to seize power. Now, if that had been the extent of it, if they'd known that had been the extent of it, there's a real question of whether they would, the, the Bolsheviks would have gone on and carried out the revolution. Because an isolated Russian revolution was going to die. Every single person among the leadership of the Bolshevik party, and I would say the majority of the people at the leadership levels within the Soviets themselves, among the workers and sailors and, and soldiers, was that they were going to spark a world revolution. The questions of the Soviet Union that left all the blood on the hands of socialism and tarnished Marxism were all made in a context of what do we do now? You could argue they made the wrong call. You could argue that the one guy who knew what to do was Bukharin, who said, this has failed. That means that we have to step back and let the bourgeois do the job of building capitalism to the sufficient point that we can seize it. Because we're not there yet. We have to admit that. Climb down. Buy off the peasants. Buy them off. Create a more rational distribution of resources through central planning, but through through like a, a collaborative effort of a of a party that comes from the working class. But introduce capitalism and buy buy us back into the system as it exists, so that the moment of crisis can come and we'll be better prepared for it instead of yoking ourselves to a monstrous project of hyper-exploiting the, the, uh, the peasant class, turning it into a proletariat at the cost of millions of lives, which is what happens everywhere that capitalism is introduced, but doing it under communist auspices. Would that be worth doing? And they would have said, no, maybe now it isn't. If they'd, if they'd asked themselves honestly, they might have said, that wouldn't be worth it. But they made the choice that they made, and we all had to fight the fight. We had, we had the war with the armies we had. But the reason they got to that point is because they believed there were going to be a world revolution. And there was, God damn it, there was going to be one. In some universe, there was one. When the Kiel mutineers refused to let the fucking suicidal junker psychopaths, these kraut samurai of the, royal, of the German high command, sail the fucking uh, Baltic fleet out in a suicide mission to, to be destroyed in honorable combat by the British Navy, doing a, 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 a massive seppuku. They didn't want to do it because it wasn't their fucking war. And it started a, a revolution that, if it had been yoked to the project in Russia, could have created a, a genuine conflict at a point of, of fluidity with a capitalism that might have been disorganized enough and weakened enough to be challenged by it. And why didn't it happen? Because in Germany, because that's one of the places that capitalism had developed first, its, it's, it's, its flesh was most robust. It, its tendrils into the working class were the strongest. And that meant when the moment came, the majority of uh, the German Social Democratic Party, both rank and file, 
but definitely among the the union and political leadership of the of the uh, of the party itself, were aligned with capitalism at a material level because it had benefited them. And so the Freikor, the the brain fried, uh, death worshipping psychos who had been turned into orcs, essentially, by contact with industrial warfare, were organized and let loose by the Social Democrats to stamp down the World Revolution, which was what anybody with eyes could see should have known was the moment, the apocalyptic moment that Marxism was premised upon. And so... The Soviets challenge that it failed to meet after the uh, end of the, the, the World War, after we failed to turn the World War into a class war, after we offered a, a, a tr- after they tr- offered a truce with the United States and allowed them to build a world economic structure that they would be excluded from, where the U.S. dollar would be the reserve currency of Earth, where they would have to participate in capitalism in extraction of surplus value for the market in order to sustain themselves in the state competition system that they had agreed to after World War II, instead of extending uh, the war into uh, a new phase. Which you could argue is Stalin's greatest crime. Is in that moment turning towards cowardly self-preservation. And you could say they might have lost, but we lost anyway. Here's the important thing to note. We lost anyway. And of course, you can't blame these people for not having this the knowledge to know it at the time. They did what they did because they didn't know. But we have to recognize it now. That is the whole point of history, is to recognize in the now where our opportunities lie so that we don't let that happen to us. Because if Stalin had built up that industrial behemoth, turned that working, turned the, the, the clay, the, the potato sack of the Russian peasantry into the beautiful uh, uh, twice-baked potatoes of, uh, of the five-year plan in industrial Russia, allied with uh, workers' movements all throughout the world that were essentially appendages of them at that point, and putting down the fascist beast, in a climate before the uh, before the uh, before the creation of um, like the 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 bomb on a massive scale would have fully t- tipped the balance. Maybe you could fight a war with capitalism and win, but if you don't fight it, my God, what was it all for? It was to save your fucking ass. Disgusting, honestly disgusting. Stalin's greatest crime. Because all the other ones would have been redeemed if he'd made the right choice in that moment. The choice that Tito wanted to make, which is the basis of Tito's split with the Warsaw Pact, is that when the, um, when the Civil War in Greece broke out and th- there was a real contest for power between the, the Greek partisan communists and the reactionary monarchists backed by the British, Stalin decided to trade Greece for the Iron Curtain. Sell out the Greek communists. And Tito said, if you do that, 
then this is all for nothing because we will not be able to contest capitalism in a, in the context of the market on their terms. They will eat us. They will dissolve us. And Stalin, because he was scared, said, we're done. And of course you could say that they would have lost anyway. You have to, f- the blood on your hands has to compel you to something beyond your own disgusting self-preservation. But anyway, people are people. And the system of a Bolshevik party in power, absent a world revolution, was going to mean Stalin was going to, a figure like Stalin was, was guaranteed to take power. And by that I mean is the Bolshevik party was a vanguard illegal party, and this is the important part. It was an illegal party that operated through the vast majority of its time uh, as an illegal entity in Russia, where its leadership was largely uh, exiled, either exiled internally to uh, towns in Siberia, where they frequently escaped from, or in exile in Western capitals, where its activities within Russia were banned, its newspapers were banned. It operated as a criminal enterprise so that it could be at the moment, seize power. And they did it. And they did it on the right context. And I'll tell you right now, Lenin is the great genius of all time because Lenin was right at every moment. until he, until. he But the thing is, he died at the moment where we never had to find out. We died at the moment with Lenin where we don't have to find out. But Lenin was perfectly suited to seizing power with that, going to war with the army he had. He, but his assumption that seizing power in Russia was worth doing was premised on the idea that it would launch a world revolution. It was all premised on that underlying assumption that Trotsky had conceived of the permanent revolution. That is what solved the riddle of how to move forward in a context where Marxism couldn't really be applied to a system where there was no capitalist class to work against. You would have capitalism brought in as a cargo cult by this uh, this feudal ru- ruling class that was been thrust into competition by capitalism and was frantically trying to keep up. And that's the most important thing to remember. Is that none of these ruling parties, none of the ruling classes of any of the European powers, save maybe the Dutch, the ones who started it all, wanted capitalism to triumph. Wanted things to change the way capitalism made them change. Wanted to move power away from central hierarchical authority and towards a ritual of social affirmation. But they had to do it because they were in competition with each other. And capitalism provided a superior mechanism for wielding state power by rationalizing the distribution of resources of the state away towards private profit and towards socially uh, advantageous uh, uh, mechanisms of governance. They did it because they had to. The Junkers of Germany didn't want to fucking create capitalism. Do you think Bismarck wanted to fucking legalize the socialists? He had to. Do you think the Tory weirdos of... uh, of England, those 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 bewigged freaks out in their fucking chalets doing horrifying sex crimes to each other. 
looking out on their vast acreages, do you think that they really wanted to fucking be cheek to jowl with a bunch of uh, of foreigners and Jews in a city using little tokens to make fake fake value? You think they wanted to do something as unhonorable as that, as dishonorable as, as determining value in a way beyond honor and, and conquest on the battlefield? No, they had to because the French were doing it and the Spanish were doing it and everybody was doing it and they were fueling it with the spoils of empire and conquest in the new world. And the hyper-exploitation at the point of the spear of imperial capitalism allowed them to distribute profits socially because capitalism gave them up to equalize the system. Look at Russia. The Russian Revolution was essentially preordained by the fact that the uh, the absolutism of like feudal rule was so recently intact at the top of the social order in the form of the czar that instead of facilitating capitalist development in Russia, like the royal houses of Western Europe were doing, the fucking Romanovs were sticking a goddamn... Uh, Stick. They were sh- they were shoving a stick into the spokes of the thing the entire time, because capitalism had been thrown up in the lap of the of a of a, of a medieval order. Meanwhile, in England, the the country that develops capitalism at, at the point of like the cerebrum where its brain is stored, their royal family was literally brought in was essentially hired for the job of being the royal family of England by a uh, a um by the emergent merchant class of England like the glorious revolution of 1688 where the last vestiges of land-based rule in the form of the um in the form of the Stuart line the Jacobite line, the, the, the Catholic Stuarts of England, was overthrown by the, by the new emergent merchant class of England, which had first overthrown the Stuarts before, were unable to form a social basis around capitalism that early and therefore brought the Stuarts back. But once Stuart absolutism reasserted itself, they essentially fired their CEO and hired a new guy. Someone from the place where capitalism had been birthed in the modern era, the fucking Dutch lowlands, by importing a a, a constitutional monarch into the system with the understanding that his job was to go to parades and wave at people. And so capitalism in England is presided over by this machine that is designed to lubricate the system, a parliamentary system that just throws water onto the gears to keep it from smoking. It keeps the friction to a minimum by distributing rationally as much as it can. In Russia, medieval absolutism shows up, is forced by competition with Europe to sustain capitalism, to, to indulge the whims of Sergei Vita and Peter Stolypin. But at the end of the day, it has to reassert itself. And, and the fecklessness of, 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 of uh, Nicholas where he goes back and forth between liberalizing and, and, and going reactionary, 
is always has to be understood as him having a natural inclination towards reaction, being forced by circumstances to give in, but then putting the lid on as soon as he can until he can't anymore, which is what happens when World War II blows the whole thing up. But in every other system in Europe, every other monarchy in Europe, there had been sufficient infusion of capitalism. Capitalism had been around long enough to infuse itself within the mechanisms of power that those ruling classes could preside over a system that allowed for more rational distribution. So even the Kaiserreich, which was slow on the uptake, Bismarck, genius of geniuses, one of those 19th century geniuses, like, uh, like Marx, honestly, like some uh, sort of a, a, a revisionist Marxist in, in, in the highest level of power, you could almost put him as. Like a guy who understands we need to keep civilization alive here because we cannot allow these two things, this, this, uh, this system of absolute power held by a small minority with capitalism ripping people towards a level of total sub, sub, submission to it, of, of enslavery and thraldom to it, which created social reaction. That's the thing that matters, is that as you create misery, as you create proletarianization, you create a reaction. You create social formations alienated from the system willing to fight against it. And Capitalism cannot deal with that because capitalism can only extract maximally. It is those middle people within all classes who can do it by creating politics. And Marx and Bismarck was able to look at the system and understand that there needed to be a rationalized buy-in of these workers if they were going to sustain the state project of the German Empire. And so that's why... The uh, one-two punch. What did he do during during the eighteen eighties? Uh, what did Bismarck do to the uh, to the emergence of capitalism as a fully formed system that was going to be undergirding the the economies of all the European powers and was going to determine the the uh, conditions of conflict between the states? Okay, state state conflict had been the rule since Westphalia, but now it's state conflict under the conditions of universally applicable capitalism. What do you do? Every leader. At the, every level of power, both private and public in the Western world, had to answer that question in about the 1880s. And the answer was determined by where there were the technological, the combination of technological uh, efficiency and extraction of uh, colonial plunder that allowed you to buy off the moment of, of reckoning and allow you to compete now in the interstate conflict. And Bismarck said, what do we do? We legalize the socialists. We, we get, let them vote for socialists. We let socialists serve. We let them get essentially turned into bourgeois. Everybody at the, every, now that you, you've, you've validated the, the working class, you've created new jobs for the working class that are no longer working class jobs in that they are no longer uh, connected to the uh, process of extraction of surplus value. They are now there to facilitate capitalism. And that's a cushy job. You're, you are no longer feeling, you're of course still exploited with capitalism, but it's now a mixed condition and you don't feel exploited. You feel rewarded. 
you feel that you are the beneficiary of alienation at a material level because you are. And then you have to rationalize it one way or another, but it is your condition now. And that puts you invested in capitalism. It makes you invested in the perpetuation of a system that has allowed you to feel this comfort. So now you believe not a conflict that will see you annihilated. You believe in a conflict that will see you victorious over time because of how fucking smart and virtuous you are. And that's how the smart and virtuous leaders of the SDP uh, by the time World War I rolls around vote for war credits. And then when the crucial moment comes in 1918, they fucking bring fascism to life. They perform a fucking dark ritual and bring the Fry Corps into existence, which will then be the, 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 the needle point end of the spear of fascism that ends up cracking open the social fucking uh, fabric of, of Germany and then d- destroys half of the world. And all of that is just a way to say that your system can compete in a, in a multi-state Westphalian conflict contest with other states under capitalism if it can distribute rationally at the, at, at the center because of technological uh, facility and uh, some degree of like social cohesion and outside resources from the exploited half of the world and the exploited half of the equation, both within the country and outside of it. And so that means that the challenge of the Khrushchevs after Stalin bitches out at the moment of, of truth and puts us on a conflict of, uh, of where we're, we're assuming capitalism is the conditions, then you have to create a consumer society you have to buy off your own working class because, yes, things were provided universally within Germany, Russia, in a way that they weren't in the United States. But comforts and pleasures of a consumer society were not there, not in the same um, amounts. The bounty wasn't there. And it's because there were less, there's less to fucking access. You have a smaller based area than the capitalist West. You have vastly less developed technological capacity. You have vast much less concentrated capital that can circulate within the system. You have a lot of poverty and impoverishment and you have a lot of undeveloped areas that is still in uh, the production of the production of uh, agricultural surplus, which has to be rationalized. You have to rationalize the distribution of uh, agricultural surplus first and foremost. And so Khrushchev is the challenge of how do we create plenty and therefore allow ourselves to compete with the West. And they tried it with computers. And Red Plenty is a great book about that. Uh, and it's not, it's fictionalized, so it, it's really, it's, it's a very interesting format. Uh, it just goes through the era, and you see where there's a, a real attempt to marry planning with like technology, with, with uh, algorithms and stuff. And it falls short in large part because the Soviet leadership is too adhered to their own power to risk losing it by the machine making decisions that are to their benefit, which they wouldn't necessarily be. Like they were too ossified as a ruling class, and that's because they were the party that had taken power. They were an outlaw party that operated as a criminal organization, which meant once Lenin died, once the Moses made, brought them to the promised land and they had to start fresh – the person who was going to be closest to power and most able and to effectively exercise it in the conditions that they were presented with would be an amoral gangster psychopath. Only an amoral gangster psychopath in the conditions of a criminal organization ruling 
under conditions of total encirclement and attack. First a civil war and an allied invasion, and then full economic warfare after that. And then, of course, the fucking Germans showing up and killing half the country. Those are the conditions that are creating, that are forging the conflict within Russia, and with the Soviet Union, rather. And that means anybody with any fucking uh, social conscious, any proletarian solidarity, is going to get fucking thrown away by the wayside. They were going to be destroyed, as were the dumb, cynical people who couldn't just operate from, uh, from wily uh, planning. The only ones who win are these cynical people who are also smart. <clears throat> and that's Stalin. And he did a great job assuming the conditions he did, which is, all right, now we're just going to be, we're just going to care about this state existing. And what's good for it is good for socialism. And there's no more socialism outside of it in the rest of the world, so that ends up becoming the framework for the rest of the Cold War. And what a shock that we lose. But the challenge of Khrushchev, the challenge to Khrushchev was to build sufficient technological capacity for solving the price problem to distribute things, to allow the Soviet idea to, to conquer. Because it is an idea. The reality is capitalism. The idea is socialism. And it can only do that if it is pressed forward with an idealistic way. But the Soviets didn't do that. They operated largely through realpolitik. Now, not totally, not like American empire, and that hurt them too. But they couldn't spread the idea after a while. And that's because they were locked into preserving the party, not preserving anything as transcendent as the idea of socialism. But anything that happened in Russia is not their fault. It's Germany's fault. That is the thing. Because Germany was supposed to answer the call and they fucking said, who's this? New phone. So once it was clear that the Soviets weren't going to be able to answer the question in the 70s, when the, when the oil, what happened in the 70s is that uh, all of the urgency on any meaningful question of solving the contradiction of a consumer socialist society under restrained resources was solved by oil prices going up. The big, uh, the big oil shock in the, in, in uh, the 70s boosted the, uh, vastly boosted the Soviet export economy and therefore allowed for this stagnation where the polit political crisis was bought off for the first time with the consumer uh, the consumer glut that uh, had been promised by Khrushchev. But it wasn't because they'd actually solved the question of price and created efficiency there like they wanted to do, like Cybersyn in Chile wanted to do before it was destroyed by Pinochet, one of the great disasters of our time, uh, is that they provided them with it. Black Sea vacations for workers, a fucking new washer dryer and a shitty car. They actually were able to provide that for a little bit. But of course, the ironic, ironic thing is, is that that oil shock, they, they thought that it was the solution to the problems of the Soviet state. It was actually dooming them. Because once that shockwave went all the way around the world, it resulted in the full neoliberalization of world politics and the destruction of the Soviet Union. 
because it is that oil shock that breaks the Keynesian consensus at the top of capitalism in the United States and forces us to crack the whip in the political realm, essentially, to, to, to stop buying off and to start, uh, start in, 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 in enforcing austerity, unevenly distributed towards the bottom, away from political power, which is why the people at the center of the center of, of uh, capitalism succeeded and, and, and were fine with it. The homeowner class in the United States, they, by the time the crisis came, they, could, they were bought off sufficiently that they're still Republicans. They're still the base of this reaction within capitalism. But first it came for the urban blacks. Like people think, people talk about uh, the, the, the collapse of, the, of, the, of the, the black community in the 70s. And of course the conservative argument is that, oh, their, their culture went to shit. Uh, thankfully, because we got rid of uh, segregation, because they started commingling and, and living lewdly and lasciviously, they lost their community center because they lost their uh, their segregated character. <clears throat> that's the liberal, that's the conservative argument for what happened. What actually happened is, is that the, the small black working, black working to middle class that had been established for the white working to middle class after the world, after World War II, was actually taking hold. They were actually starting to build some of it in the urban centers. They were actually starting to build some wealth, build build an infrastructure and a social reality there, a fabric within capitalism. But then that oil shock that resulted in the reorientation away from, uh, from the labor end of uh, distribution of profit towards the ownership end that's going to un- tip over the Keynesian consensus into uh, the final unraveling starts with deindustrialization in the cities, which means the people who moved there most recently, the, the black emigres of the Great Migration period, are the first to be uh, uh, dis- deprived by it. And what we see in the 90s and aughts and, and, and the hillbilly elegy phenomenon of white people, oh my God, these white people, they're acting black. That's the big horror of the, of the Charles Murray thesis, is why are these white people acting like black people socially? And it's like, well, no, it's nothing, it's nothing to do with culture. It's nothing to do with brain shape or any of this bullshit. It's that the conditions of total immiseration in America, uh, the total proletarianization hit them first. And now your social order is seeing the same disruptions, the same pathologies emerge. What a shot. But it hits the bottom first. It hits the bottom. The poorest, the poorest uh, urban uh, minorities, then later uh, the poorest rural whites, rural and suburban whites, they fall off the board. And they stop, and they they become the, the they are now are are the poor. Uh, they're now as, essentially as social. They are as politically alienated, basically, as 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 black people are. Like not quite, but it's 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 similar. Uh, and then you have those remaining uh, homeowners who bought got bought out after World War II. Now it's shrinking. The the the, the ring of protection is going away, and their their expression of that uh, alienation is this culture war because they are consumed by the same matrix the rest of us are. And they cannot express their politics in class terms because they don't live them and they don't believe themselves to, to exist in, in those categories. Those aren't uh, defined to them with meaning. What means things to them are questions of race, culture, nationalism, and therefore their politics reflect that. So that's, that's the conflict we're seeing now. That is the, that's all we have 
instead of politics. And that's why our only hope is the reemergence around labor of first resistant, first strike culture, and then political culture coming out of strike culture. That's going to be it, is going to be the, 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 the conflicts, the sparks lit in labor fight conflict, like not the cultural, conf, cultural realm of politics. That'll come later, and it's going to also be going on at the local level now to seed bed. Because remember, all big changes, all big shifts politically are driven at the base by co- co- the ferment of class conflict. But they are like those torrents are moved through uh, tributaries defined first by culture, by politics, by formal conflict, by ideal conflict, because the people carrying out the people creating these social forms that we live are all outside of class conflict. There's they're not living class conflict. They're living there. There's the fabricated conflict that their adherence to capitalism demands. And so their culture reflects that. And of course, the real, the real tragedy of the moment, and this is why I said Red Plenty instead of Ministry for the Future, and why I think Ministry for the Future is a book that has similar questions on its mind, uh, is that the, the, question, the, 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 the dilemma that felled the Soviet experiment that felled actual existing socialism in the 20th century has been solved to a, to a large enough extent to guide humanity away from total annihilation towards the continuation of like a social conflict, a social project because cap, the triumph of capitalism equals the annihilation of the social. That is, I think that is, that's a math. I would write that on a board if I knew how math worked. Because it is total immiseration at the bottom, which means a smaller and smaller percentage at the top protected by technology until there aren't any left, until they're destroyed mutually somehow. Maybe a few of them escape into the singularity and they win, but the rest of us are annihilated. That is the axiomatic endpoint of capitalism. Socialism could technologically given that if we have the existing given the existing level of technology that we have a rational distribution of resources in which capitalism the end, the profit motive has been extinguished from the machinery the machine that capitalism built its software its programming around capital around profit accumulation around surplus extraction has been uh, removed has been bleached out of the system. And then you boot in a new fucking software protocol towards rationalized, technologically facilitated distribution of resources within the system. We have the sufficient concentration of capital now to do that. I think that is the fundamental argument of the book Ministry for the Future. I'm not going to talk about it too much today because I kind of went on a tangent. I'll follow up more on this tomorrow. But suffice to say, for the moment, that I think that question has been answered, and the book, Ministry for the Future, is largely about making the case that that's that's true. 
And I think that is why the book has basically nothing to say about how this thing would happen, how this machinery would be seized by the working class of the world in any meaningful definition of that term. That is left pretty much unexplained, marginal. It is, it is turned into like a voice. It's turned into a feeling. It's turned into an experience rather than a description. And that's because that answer, the question cannot be answered. No, it's the same reason Marx couldn't know that capitalism was going to defeat the, the, the conflict that he saw within it, technologically. He didn't know that was going to happen because that was the X factor. We're in a new world with new X factors. So the thing you can't know is what is going to move this thing at a grand level. All you can do is know what to do in the moment. And this book is essentially Kim Stanley Robinson saying, Imagine you're in the moment when it matters. Imagine when you're in the moment where you can feel like the, what the right thing to do is. And instead of rationalizing your way around doing it, you do it. Imagine every moment of your life where that counts and you make the right choice, the choice that's against maybe your best interest because you're blackpilled, because you've decided that nothing matters but you. That, that there's no point in fighting anything truly, that politics really is just a moral costume that you put on to validate your position within a system that you benefit from. And that's when rule, that's, that more or less has been what has ruled us all through our lives. Now, it doesn't rule us all, all the time, but it rules most of us most of the time. And honestly, any, any like the arc of uh, history that, that uh, Martin Luther King talks about, that arc is defined by people pulling against that. But the thing is, they don't do it uniformly. They do it one by one. But then if the right chain reaction is triggered by action, then in bunches. And then you can actually see the hand of God move into human affairs. But those moments are only retroact retrospectively understandable as such. In the moment, there's still contingent decisions that we have to make instinctively. And what drives us is an emotional thing. It's not a, it's not a reasoned thing. And so we will be driven. And the question is, is that emotion tied to our self-interest, our narrow belief in ourself, or to a greater belief in others, in the world, in reality, in Love, to be incredibly cheesy about it, in meaning beyond words and beyond sensation. Because if the world can be defined by sensation, then words like love don't mean anything. Emotions are essentially alien. They're basically random. And all you can do is pursue the most predictable ones, the most selfish ones, the most indulgent ones. Because they're the most sure. The other ones require belief. They require you to be able to get in your head and imagine something and have that thinking give you a feeling. That only comes from experience and by adhering meanings, branding them with meaning through words, through words and symbols that we carry with us. And so if we're going to win, humanity is going to win this thing, which is a big if. I don't think I don't like our odds, but because we're here, there's a chance. Always a chance. Definitionally, because remember, this, these, this moment is always there. 
The moment to choose love is always there. So you can't know. And so the book really does leave that. What's left is the skeleton of stuff that we could do if we felt like it. And that makes it very unsatisfying, obviously. But it does, I think, still mean that it is a useful contribution to the literature because for the people who are more inclined towards the rational, more inclined towards believing that emotions don't have any kind of uh, 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 effect on reality, that reality is essentially knowable and that emotions do not form its reality, that we don't essentially make reality emotionally. And that is, that is the rational delusion. The fact is, is that all beliefs, all understanding the world arrives from emotion first and foremost. Emotion is what uh, defines all, everything else is, comes in every sense after. In the temporal sense, in that it comes, it is a response to feeling. It's the response to bodily and sensorial and pre-verbal emotion. You have the feeling before you can put a word to it, which means rationalism is always going to miss that part of the world that is composed of pure feeling. But that is made by our rational perception of the world. That is the dialectical tension between the two. And you have to have a faith in that to act. And if you do, you will find the moments to act. And if enough of us do, and the right, and we hit seven enough times on the fucking, uh, on the craps table of, of the universe, and the right hand falls the right way, we can do it. And this book is there to give the more rationally minded a little bit of faith in that. Because here is the, what we could do if it was possible. There's a different energy in, you know, rushing at a cockpit, like Flight 93 style. If you've got a pilot on the plane who you know could land it, then if you don't, you have like, you, you think about it longer, you plan more ahead, you coordinate your actions better because your fear has been overwhelmed by your belief in your future. If you work together, you don't have a fucking pilot and the pilots are dead. And there's these guys aiming the plane 747. You'll fight for yourself. We know that. And unless that didn't happen, who knows? Like, I believe that's a possible result. I believe if people knew that a plane was been hijacked, they might do it, if not to just sit there, because they'd be driven there by fear, but they'd be driven there purely by fear, by animal fear, untethered to reason, because why they wouldn't really have any reason to believe that they'd actually survive. They're just frantically acting. And, and, uh, an understanding of this dy- dynamic, reading history through this lens, seeing this dynamic play out throughout history and in the world around us, applying that dialectical lens, it solves us. It soothes our fear and allows us to see the world through more clear eyes because we are not being ever so momentarily made anxious by the bleeping alarm sound the knowledge that we're on a fucking Flight 93 with no auxiliary pilot. But if you really do, you have that knowledge tethered to 
some transcendent understanding of the world, some transcendent understanding of meaning residing beyond the self. That gives you praxis. And so that is why I can't really ever, that's why I really sympathize with Robinson in reading this book, because I feel like with a lot of these talks that I'm doing and a lot of my, my like, I guess you'd call it artistic project, pretentiously, of my career, insanely, you could call it, has been to give voice to that understanding, that dialectical fixedness, that explanatory framework, because it can soothe fear a little bit. It can give you reason to believe that there's a possibility that there are, there are machinery we can grasp. If we can push ourselves out of the matrix together, there's machinery in our grasp. Yeah, my throat is getting a little, ooh, I should wrap it up, though. It's been, I've gone long already. Mm. So I'll talk more specifically about the book tomorrow. But for today, just that's a long way of talking about why I think uh, it's interesting to study history, and politics in the contemporary sense. It's interesting to apply the historical materialist heuristic to the culture that we consume because it can make us fitter actors in world history. It can make us sharper. It can make us less fearful, more uh, more truly virtuous. I mean, I hate to be pretentious and, and sound like a, like a fucking Greco-Roman, but like apply virtue to our public life, which is a real thing that we really have to uh, um, deal with because the left that we have created online, I'm sorry, is a left defined by capitalism, is a left defined at the base level by the equation of your self-interest with the left's self-interest. The idea that if I prosper materially, that's good for everybody which is the same delusion that powers capitalists. Rising tide lets all boats. If I'm in the arena posting, or if I'm doing my job at my podcast, or I'm do, doing volunteering for the DSA, or I'm voting the right way, then I am essentially earning my spot in the human tugboat of virtue. Because remember, you're still doing lifeboat ethics from within capitalism, without even knowing it. Because as I said, this is a culture created and reinforced by the reality of social media. And so that is the only way that I can think of to take the fundamental contradiction that my job is to entrance you into this fantasy politics with the fact that I, my goal now is to uh, it's, disenchant people from that, you know, the Howard Beale thing. Like, how do you do that? Is that not a fundamental contradiction? And it is, but it's one that can be transcended by belief. By belief. I will keep doing this, to the, and I will continue to feel good about doing it. That's the important part. I will feel fulfilled. I will feel centered. I won't feel anxious. I won't feel guilty. I will not feel neurotic. I will feel kind of at peace. The degree to which I do what I think of earnestly is a good job of making the case to disengage, not at 
the level of discrete content consumption because everyone now is a cyborg. No one can log off because our understandings of ourselves are embedded in these matrices. It's merely a question of emphasis and mindfulness to be pretentious about it and, 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 uh, and yoga pant mom about it. And so I can only feel good about doing this, about spending my time doing this, if I can feel that it is contributing to that. And that means that I have to be doing stuff that I believe in. And so I find that that's usually the case when I'm like doing these. Like I feel very on the beam. I feel like this is good stuff. But it really is when I try to write, when I try to abstract in the cold, in, without the, like, the, 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 the light on me, when I try to fill in the gaps, I find that that's when doubt starts creeping in. And that is really because I have no doubt that what I'm saying now is, is correct. But it is the specific language of reinforcement that I'm less confident of because I'm not that talented. Because these are different abilities born by different neural pathways that have been reinforced over time that are now largely fixed because your neuroelasticity stops around 25. Like the brain you have at 25, it's going to develop over time and change, but its basic structures are basically fixed. You're going to have essentially the same amount of uh, capacity to, to add neurons as, as, as you did uh, at 25. So I'm pretty much fixed there at this level of we want to call talent. So that means when I sit down and have to like in front of a thing, then self-interest in the form of do something that's more engaging and pleasurable because it's less anxiety producing, like post or watch a movie. Since you can't do that, why wouldn't you? A little gremlin, the demon on my shoulder. And so that means I'm less productive. And then that creates a cycle of, uh, of self-doubt and uh, self-loathing and, and recrimination and fear that then pull me towards indulging uh, and not doing the work that I got to do. And so that is the dynamic I'm working with. And what I've come to terms with, and I think is like kind of me um, hopefully making a breakthrough, is that this is not a conflict that I can resolve. This is the conflict that drives the whole project. This is the actual uh, atom. This is the split atom at the center of the reactor. Because like that state, that those states of, 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 uh, of contentment and tranquility, they, uh, what interrupts them is intrusions of, of selfish uh, desire. And so they're going to pull you away from that unless you can constructively spend time and so you balance the two because if you do it for too long then then eventually you know you're not uh unless you've reached a level of spiritual attainment that i'm not at yet you get pulled in that direction devil the devil gets louder in your ear but the uh fundamental conflict the manichean delusion of christianity is that that can be resolved one way or the other and that's what powers are, deformed politics, are, are, are the cycle of indulgence and Puritan abstemiousness that drives our culture. It's because we think we can stamp it out. We have to embrace it. We have to let, we'll let those atoms spin around that nothingness at the center 
and then power our machinery of life. And your challenge is to be aware of that condition so that your actions are driven by uh, a felt belief that what you should be doing is what's good for everybody else. Because that will drive you towards good work in every sense. It will drive you towards doing your job earnestly and well to your best abilities, but also doing service in the community, helping people, helping friends, helping strangers, operating out of a felt sense of universal love that is maintained by a rational understanding of what you should be doing in a moment. And that's where the, 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 uh, the, the they live glasses of historical materialism are for you. Getting a little froggy. Uh, somebody says, um, just to wrap up here, because this is a good this is a good capstone. Somebody says, is this like in 1984 when Winston says that he believes in the end the party will lose? Yes, because uh, Orwell was only talking about the Soviet Union. Like there's there is no universal application of uh, of his vision of, of dystopia, which is why it's aged so poorly and why it's so irrelevant to the current moment or any moment. Frankly, it's because he was so fixated from capitalism, from the bosom of capitalism, with uh, with defeating the Soviet Union. And you could argue he had good reason to, because by that point, it was a snarling beast. It was this whipped dog. It was this, this self-interested, brutalized, traumatized uh, uh, halfling trying to survive in the wilderness. You should still have fought for it, bro. If you're on the capitalist side, you should probably still have fought for it in the way that you could have. And he didn't. For whatever reason, he didn't. And I honestly don't blame him too much because seeing, seeing uh, Barcelona in 1937 uh, when, the, when the, the communists cracked down on the anarchists, uh, being on the anarchist side, it's hard not to take that personally, I can imagine. But so he's assuming this condition of scarcity, this condition where you have a party that is actually rationally distributing, but in a context of complete scarcity. And that might have happened if the Soviets had somehow beaten the United States in the market, in the market conflict, or like won a, won, maybe won a nuclear war. I guess that's what could have happened. The Soviets had won a nuclear war. That might have been how the future goes. But if you assume that capitalism is going to win, which you should if you're in the West, and that that would be a bad thing, which you have to, you have to assume that the triumph of capitalism will be a bad thing, then you have to imagine what that would look like. And then you have the other guy, the opposite of Orwell, Aldous Huxley, whose Brave New World supposes, what if capitalism wins, but on its own terms? Capitalism is able to reach a level of technological sophistication that eludes the question of inputs obviates the necessity for exploited people that obviates the necessity for any labor input at all. And since that book also has a nuclear war in it, you can kind of imagine 
that those two books are two visions of the future after a nuclear war. One where the Soviets win, 1984. One where the United States wins. But also from within capitalism. So that assumes that it can sustain itself. It assumes that it's a stable world. And it assumes that stability through technological innovation. Yes, there is still need for physical labor at the human level, but we have sufficient technological capacity to create humans designed to work that way without feeling exploited. Literally changing humanity technologically. And that is always the understanding of capitalism. Every utopia and dystopia of capitalism is premised on its ability to technologically overcome its own contradictions because capitalism can only technologically overcome its own contradictions over time as it is as it is triumphant and so you have to ask yourself if you're a capitalist first of all if you win your best case scenario is a brave new world everyone is a hedonist there is a kind of a ritual uh, jungle orgy that takes the place of religious ritual. People live for eternal youth. They fixate on youth. And then they just die. They just snap dead uh, around age 60. They don't have to worry about seeing people get old. They don't have to worry about dealing with uh, age or time. They get to live in a delusional, fantastic now until the moment they essentially get assassinated. It's like, hey, what if capitalism was... You get to eat, drink, and be merry, and then he's shooting you in the head when you're 60. That's a way to solve the question of uh, inputs, right? Like, okay, we don't have to worry about us outstripping resources because we're culling the population. But they don't mind because they're having such a good time. That's your best case scenario under capitalism. So if you believe in capitalism and you also are a believer in any kind of uh, like traditional reality, some traditional masculinity, any of that stuff, no, not going to happen. You're probably going to be an upsilon semi-moron. And then you're going to get to watch all the fucking uh, alphas just fucking suck until they get thrown into a meat grinder. Now you're forgetting, I said 60, but part of the technology they have is that they extend vitality so that people aren't feeling aging. They, they feel, you feel like you're like you're in your 20s or 30s until 60. And then you look that way too. That's the important part. So you got to say, if you like capitalism, that's your best case scenario. But here's the important thing. That will never happen because we are now at the point where we see the inputs capacity. Do we have it? Do we have the technological capacity to rationalize human production? Yes. Not without bumps, not without conflict, not without violence, not without mass death, but mass death was going to happen anyway. We're talking handleable mass death. George C. Scott, I'm not saying we won't get our hair must mass death. The alternative is mega death. With a few people left in their bubble, sucking and fucking for eternity until something breaks in their equilibrium and then they are eliminated and annihilated. Or they all become computer programs. But then the computer program will end. And that moment will be eternal. The moment that will be eternal is the moment of extinguishment. Hell or heaven. Because... There is a non-Brave New World desacralized hell world version of that post-scarcity reality that is possible. A world where people get to live natural lives, live natural lifespans, are 
content and happy along all of them are in some sort of harmony with the world, have, have some sort of spiritual belief that transcends the, the, the X's and O's of, of, of human life, the limitations of a singular life li- lifetime. You believe in a life beyond that, an everlasting, eternal reality that you are, of course, also part of for every moment, but which you lack the senses to be able to be aware of most of the time because you've been thrust into the shit, hell, uh, de-atomized end of history. We're now shredded monads trying to rebuild all of our uh, sensory organs from scratch every moment. Every moment we're, we're, like the, we're feeling the raw tendrils of our severed social connections and our need for uh, some sort of meaning that transcends uh, our physical place in the world. And then it is seared shut by the, the grinding mechanisms of the market overawing our ability to act independently of them. Being driven more and more to become androids. This is unstable. It will break. The system will break. How will it break will be up to us. So we must be ready. We must be vigilant. All right, I'm going to get some drinks. I'm a little, uh, little parched after that. So see you dudes later. Dudes and dudettes. Major League butt kicking is back on. What is it? Dudes and dudettes. Major League butt kicking is back online. Is that it? Back in town. For some reason, that's not what that sounded like. Dudes and dudettes, Major League Butt Kicking is back in town.